Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rural Spark, the podcast exploring rural innovation in Canada, both social and economic. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. We all know that our rural communities are getting older, and of course, that brings certain challenges. But what about the benefits of our aging demographic? In some ways, are we not doing enough to leverage the skills, knowledge, and commitment of older adults for economic and social development? And are we doing enough to look after their interests in making them part of the solutions for a sustainable future? Do we need to reframe how we look at volunteerism in terms of its economic impact? To explore these issues, we connected with Dr. Elizabeth Russell of Trent University. Her research is focused on the experiences of aging in small towns and rural and remote communities in Canada. Dr. Russell, when I read a little bit about your research work, I was wondering how your interest in aging in rural and remote communities came about. That's a great question. Uh, it's funny, it was only yesterday I was explaining this to uh, my, my class. So we're back to school at Trent this year at all the universities. And, uh, you know, it's the first thing that comes up. What, how, do you, how did you get into this uh, research area? And I find that most people in aging research come to it indirectly. It's kind of a, a, a path. Uh, we don't sort of come to it straight out of graduate school. So for me, uh, I was a master's student at Memorial University in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland. And uh, I had been sent, I was doing research in a different research area of psychology. And I had been sent by my supervisor, my PhD supervisor, Dr. Ken Fowler, to be a research assistant in uh, rural Newfoundland. So he said, you know, here's the keys to a rental car, please drive, you know, five hours north. And, uh, interview these older people that are living in this long-term care facility and their caregivers and the people that work at the facility as well. So that was something that I did as sort of a part-time research assistant job. And I just really fell in love with talking to older adults and the people surrounding them in their lives and really saw that there was a need, especially in rural areas, to continue to do so, especially given the aging population. So when I finished my master's degree in the other research area, I decided that I wanted to continue pursuing aging or I wanted to shift my research and pursue aging so I uh, conducted my dissertation in the area of aging and haven't looked back since. Terrific do you find that there there is a lot of attention being paid to uh, aging issues and in particular rural Canadian aging issues in the research community and universities in Canada? I think that there is significant attention being paid to aging. I'm not so sure that there's as much attention being paid to rural aging issues. I think that no matter where you live in Canada if you look around you we can see that there is an aging population, but the fact that 80% of most Canadians live in cities may sort of undermine the fact that aging in rural communities uh, in particular is happening quicker at a much quicker rate. So I would say the attention is uh, more focused on the urban centers, although there are some very important researchers doing work in the rural area. Right. And how does that demographic picture look right now? Like what's some of the data you're seeing about the trend and the shift for rural Canada in terms of how fast we're aging? So as I said, aging is happening much faster in rural communities, given out-migration of youth. And when we talk about youth, we don't necessarily mean very young people. Even sort of middle-aged people as well would fall into this category. So especially in Atlantic Canada, there are rural communities that have very few uh, younger people, uh, even people under sort of the 50, 60 age. So aging is happening much quicker in rural communities as a result of population out-migration, the shift from resource-based industry to things that are more focused in urban centers. And as a result, there is pretty significant downsizing of, of resources and 
goods and services in rural communities that older adults and, and people in general tended to rely on. So it's something that it really has value in, in looking at that different demographic shift that's happening rurally. Right. And I'm from rural Nova Scotia as well. So we do see an urgency there. And I know some of the numbers that have been coming out of New Brunswick have been rather frightening um, with birth rate versus the obituary listings in New Brunswick is not an encouraging figure. But when we talk about aging in rural communities, we do often talk about it in a negative sense in terms of the challenges that it presents. Of course, when there's an imbalance in a community's demographic profile, we're always going to have some challenges. But I'm wondering about the benefits as well. And to some extent, could we be missing the untapped potential of seniors in our rural communities? And do you feel that we should be doing more to leverage the skills, knowledge and commitment of seniors for economic and social development? One of the things about an aging population in rural communities in particular is when communities take the time to recognize this and to acknowledge that this is happening and to maybe consider, as you said, the benefits rather than focusing exclusively on the positives or trying to attract uh, younger people to move to the community. When communities recognize that their population is aging and embrace that, as you said, there are so many benefits. One of the first things is facilitating the development of aging policies. So if a community or you know, a municipality, a region, a local government of any type recognizes and accepts their population is aging, they might start to bring in age-friendly policies, procedures, and programming and embed that within the municipality. Um, And that can also happen not only at the municipal level, but at the provincial and federal level. But when this happens, when these policy shifts happen, you often become a place that older people are looking to relocate to. So for example, there's a community in um, sort of central eastern Newfoundland that has done this in particular, has very much focused on embracing the concept of being an aging population and developing policies and programs to support older people. And they've seen a significant boom in those who are choosing to retire there. So that's actually created, um, you know, jobs for individuals who serve that population. So having an aging population really does allow for younger people to to be employed in, in various ways that serve that population. So it's certainly an, a positive thing for the economy when places shift their policies and programs to embrace that and to facilitate aging in place. And, and that's what we call an age-friendly community. And this is something that you might have heard of. It's, it's sort of happening across Canada and around the world. Age-friendly policies are those that are developed to support older adults to age in place, whether it be in their own homes or their own communities. And so by focusing on things like housing and transportation, social inclusion, those kinds of things, the environment can be more conducive to healthy aging and therefore, as I said, benefit the community that may in turn become more attractive place to retire. So that's one of the the bigger ways. There's there's many other ways as well. Older adults tend to be the types of people to spend their money more locally uh, in local organizations and businesses and really are important uh, caregivers of local knowledge and community organizing skills of older people's associations and volunteers tend to be the lifeblood of these kinds of communities. And if you look at volunteers, Voluntary organizations. It's often primarily older adults running those things, and uh, and those parts provide significant benefit to the entire community. So if you think, look at things like libraries, food banks, churches, it's volunteers and typically older volunteers that sustain those and create the backbone of that community. 
you know, so there's a variety of ways that that can benefit the community and more specifically individuals, given the changing nature of families, older people can often find themselves the mainstay of many families and households, whether it be financial support or providing care and support to their children and grandchildren and various intergenerational opportunities. Simply having that person there for children uh, longer can be significant benefit to their growth and development. So you know, long story short, there are so many ways that having an aging population in a rural community is positive and beneficial. But I think that the first step is embracing and acknowledging that and then moving forward with it. And I would assume that when we look at people who are in the earlier part of their retirement period, maybe if we are a little more flexible and creative, there's some things that can be done to match skills uh, and talents of seniors with the needs of the business community. I know I, I run into a lot of people, and I'm sure you do as well, who uh, really want to have some kind of second career in their early retirement. And maybe it's part-time and maybe it's two or three days a week. And maybe it's doing something completely different and interesting and low stress. But there is that economic model too that maybe can help fill some of the business community's needs. Yeah, absolutely. Whether it be voluntary or from a workplace perspective, as you said, a second career, this is something you see pretty often. People are so used to having that sort of nine to five or that regular schedule, and they want to maintain that, whether they're in their same community that they worked in all their lives or whether they've relocated. And tapping the the skills and abilities of those people is very important. Um, They can provide sometimes in kind if you're looking at voluntary organizations or just simply uh, in, in, uh, in businesses. But the skills of older people are something that must be sort of considered and, and held on to in the sense that they can really contribute and often are, as you said, are looking to contribute, are wanting to give back, are wanting to spend their time, whether it's paid or unpaid. Uh, so, for example, our research has shown that age-friendly organizations and municipalities seeking to become more age-friendly often have to take that step to really reach out to those in the community that have those skills. So people that uh, in their working lives were trained in a particular way and will often respond very positively. But sometimes just simply identifying those people and uh, encouraging them to come out is the first step. And uh, without considering that, sometimes that resource is missed. And one of the things that I know you're looking at is how the World Health Organization's age-friendly communities model can be best applied to Canadian communities. And you mentioned a little bit about that earlier, but can you tell us a little bit about what that model is, what's coming out of the World Health Organization, and what in particular it might mean for Canada? Yeah, so age-friendly communities is something that has been around for about 11 years, and it came out from the World Health Organization. There was a major report that was produced that can look at how communities can be more age-friendly or more accessible to and inclusive of their aging populations. And this looks at things like transportation and housing, social participation, uh, civic participation, employment, community spaces, buildings, those kinds of things. And the, the focus is on older people, but really changing those social and physical institutions for the better suit everybody. You know, if you think of parents with young children, accessibility concerns for older people would apply, would translate well there. So essentially, we're looking at age-friendly programs that are typically administered from a higher level of government. So for example, in Canada, they're typically provincially funded. Uh, So funding goes to smaller communities at the municipal level often to administer programs, starting with a needs assessment to really look from the ground up in, in the opinion of older people in that community, what is needed to change in terms of those various categories that I talked about and how can that community adapt? But one of the challenges we see 
uh, I almost ironically, because it's so fantastic that these programs are being implemented at the grassroots level from the ground up, is there's major problems with sustainability. So sustaining programs with small pots of funding that are often volunteer driven can be a challenge. So what our research is currently looking at in Atlantic Canada, as well as rural Ontario, is how can those uh, organizations, these age-friendly programs that are sort of developing from grassroots level, how can they be sustained? We know there's significant benefit to having age-friendly communities for older adults, and I talked about that earlier. Sometimes particularly successful age-friendly communities will even attract people to move to that area because of those shifts in policies and programs. However, if it's something that isn't doesn't sustain, isn't there for following the first few years, you know, it's it's not necessarily, it, that's, that's a problem. So our research has really shown that including individual champions, so very much going to what you were saying about uh, the untapped resource of, of older people and volunteers in general. So including champions and collaborations with other organizations and businesses and, and the municipality, really looking at how the community as a whole, especially in rural areas, can really work together um, to provide support to growing age-friendly programs is essential. We found that those groups that did not uh, include the municipality and did not collaborate with other organizations and, and businesses in the community typically were not sustainable in terms of their age-friendly work. So really emphasizing collaborative efforts is, is critical to engendering a sustainable age-friendly community and then the benefits therein. And I guess on that note too about um, when we get into the volunteerism aspect of it, there is the potential, of course, for burnout when we have communities that don't have a little more balance in their population profile. In terms of, I, I hear seniors talk about, you know, I've been doing this role for 20 years and I don't see who I'm going to pass the torch to. So that goes back to the out-migration problem, I guess, and that there is a, there is a limit. Burnout is a, one of the major barriers to sustainability. You know, almost every community I've talked to, as you said, people have said, you know, I've been doing this for 70 years since I was, you know, very young and, and I don't, you know, the, I don't see the people coming behind me doing this. So having grassroots organizations is important, but having them supported by paid coordinators is sometimes the biggest way to ensure sustainability so that, yes, there's volunteers involved and there's partnerships with local organizations, but having that one go-to person, that one person person that's leading it, even if it's only in a, a part-time um, nature of employment, can be the make or break factor in sustaining age-friendly programs. So taking away the responsibility and the reliance on volunteers and instead just including volunteers as, as partners um, rather than relying on them. So having that one person that's paid is often a, a challenge because age-friendly funding is often, you know, a limited pot. It's it's something that you you get once or maybe twice and then, and then that's it. So creating those partnerships, as I talked about earlier, with the municipality and with other organizations can often be the key to establishing a funding model to be able to pay that one person to facilitate the ongoing changes towards age-friendly. And I see that when you talk about volunteerism, you often use the term social economy. Do you think we need to change the way we look at volunteerism and maybe, um, you know, look more carefully at its economic impact? Volunteers provide a significant economic benefit to our communities. And I think that simply recognizing that is the first step. It's if you look at the numbers, you know, there's various numerical statistics on that in terms of how many uh, the dollars contributed to the economy yearly volunteer by volunteers. But I think that in uh, in rural communities in particular, this can't be underestimated. So looking at that, I think just acknowledging the contributions is, is the first step. And, uh, you know, I think that 
monetizing it is good, but not, but volunteers often do not want to be paid. They want to, this is why they're doing it. They want to contribute in their own way, but yet burnout is such a substantial issue. So spreading the work around and creating partnerships sometimes will allow volunteers to continue doing that work, but feel, I think, a little bit more uh, recognized for it rather than uh, dependent on. And when we spoke earlier, uh, Dr. Russell, you mentioned a couple of the research collaborations you're involved with now. Can you tell us a little bit more about them? Sure, yeah. So I'm working um, with various faculty members here at Trent, at the Trent Centre for Aging and Society. Dr. Mark Skinner and I are looking at age-friendly sustainability. We currently have a major project uh, underway looking at five uh, rural communities in Ontario in terms of age-friendly sustainability. So that's one. Another really interesting project that I've been working on is related to co-housing, so a little bit different. One of the main things that's come out of age-friendly research is that there's significant benefit for older people to aging in place, whether it be in their own homes or their own communities. Uh, however, especially in rural areas, there's often a lack of in-between housing. So in-between being in your own home and being in sort of a more established facility and especially for older adults of more middle income range um, so people with uh, pensions but maybe more limited pensions for example um, and so I've been doing some research with the Abbeyfield House Society of Lakefield. Lakefield is a rural community uh, nearby Trent and we're looking at a rental-based communal living. So the individuals would be, it would be a house, like a, an actual family home that's retrofitted or built from the ground up to have private bedrooms and bathrooms, but a shared communal area, shared meals, affordable rent is one of the important things and someone to coordinate the house. Uh, and this is typically from um a nonprofit perspective. So this is something that I'm particularly interested in is co-housing, whether it be this model or other various models. Um, there's recent research looking at uh, student older people, uh, sort of colla housing collaborations there, looking at how those kinds of models can work. So co-housing is something that I'm particularly interested in. And um, it's not something that's easily implemented necessarily at the systemic level, at the municipal level. So looking at not only the benefits, but how particularly do older people envision this effectively working for them? So that's something with that I've been working on with the uh, Abbey Field House Society of Lakefield. And one more project that I think is really important is from an intergenerational perspective. So we have this aging population, but of course, there are youth in the population as well that are you know, aware of this and, and will be impacted by this for much of their lives. And so I teach a psychology of aging course here at Trent, and I'm working with Dr. Eric Therio, who is at the Department of Psychology in Cape Breton at Cape Breton University. We both teach the same course, and we're looking at the personal effects of taking this course. So not necessarily just what did students learn, what is the material, but how does that impact them going forward? We've started to notice that students seem to self-identify that they felt before taking the course, they held maybe somewhat ageist views. They were fearful of growing older and maybe didn't understand the processes that of aging that their parents and grandparents were going through. So Dr. Terrio and I are looking at this right now in terms of how does the uh, taking a psychology of aging course impact uh, students' understanding and knowledge of aging and, and their own levels of ageism. So that's a project that will be ongoing as we teach this course over a number of years, because I think it's important not only to support older adults as they age, and implementing age-friendly environments and, and housing, appropriate housing, but also to inform the younger people who are surrounded by this aging population about the realities and the myths of aging. 
For communities that really haven't started to think about developing the kind of policies that you mentioned about developing and establishing an age-friendly community, um, it might be a bit daunting to think about how to get started, but uh, given your experience, uh, what is your advice for community leaders to start to mobilize around these issues and maybe some of the pitfalls for them to avoid? The first thing is to talk to older people in the community. Those are the people who know best what the experience of aging in that community is like. And if you're not within that demographic, you simply can't make assumptions about that, especially given the unique nature of, of individual communities. Um, for example, the rural communities that I'm working with here in Ontario differ very much from those, say, in Atlantic Canada and even within those groups. So talking to older people and identifying what are your day-to-day -day challenges of aging here in this community and why do you want to stay here? What is the reason and how can we support that? And I think that hearing those voices is the number one way to then move forward in identifying effective policies and procedures that can facilitate aging in place for those older people. And so talking to older people is the first thing. And the second thing is, is drawing on the resources that you already have, creating collaborations, reaching out to local organizations and businesses and, you know, healthcare institutions, local governments, etc. Developing those collaborations is absolutely critical. Doing age-friendly policies and program development in a vacuum is not effective. Thank you so much, Dr. Russell, for being with us today. We really appreciate your insights around aging and rural and remote communities in Canada. We'd like to connect again in the future to see uh, how your research is evolving. Uh, particularly, I think there's a lot of things that we'd like to discuss around your research into co-housing and Canada's senior population. So I hope we can reconnect in the future. And thanks again for being with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me, Helen. And thanks to everyone for joining us this week. Please drop us a line with your ideas for upcoming episodes at info at ruralspark.ca. The Rural Spark team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seaborough. Music by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada. <laughs>